0: Dr. Tim Selig is an Emmy award-winning director and conductor of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus and the National LGBTQ Center for the Arts. He's also an activist, teacher, speaker, and author. And for the first 35 years of his life, virtually none of that would have seemed possible, largely because he was a gay man living as a straight one. Tim wrote a wonderful book about his life called Tale of Two Tims, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay, which chronicles his rise to success as university professor, opera singer, father, husband, and Southern Baptist music minister to a congregation of 22,000 members before being outed and losing everything. I was honored to speak with him, and I'm excited to share his voice and story with you today. Later in the show, we will hear from Dr. Megan Fleming with her thoughts for a listener who wants to create a spicy care package for a friend who could really use some support. Speaking of spicy packages, you can find all sorts of fun and steamy goods at The Pleasure Chest, the adult store with locations in Chicago. New York, and Los Angeles, has been celebrating inclusivity and pleasure for decades. And you still have time to indulge in their kinktober specials. Start shopping at thepleasurechest.com. So I started by asking Dr. Tim Seelig what he recalls most in terms of his sexuality early on in his life.
1: Wow, when you ask that question, you know, just all kinds of pictures pass through your mind. Goodness gracious. I had a crush on a boy in the fourth grade, uh, Bobby Kellogg. He didn't know it. It was certainly a harbinger of things to come. In the fourth grade, you don't know what your type is. But looking back, oh boy, he was so my type. (laughs) (laughs) And considering the fact that I didn't come out for the next, mm, what, 25 years, that said a lot. I love talking about your first crush on TV because, you know, looking back at that as well, you're like, oh, duh. Your listeners are not going to be old enough to to know this, but mine was Bonanza because Bonanza had four male leads and really they were one of each type. There was a daddy and there was a bear. I'd be hard-pressed to have to pick one, but if I did, it was Hoss Cartwright, which added to my penchant for liking big, burly, bare men. I just laughed so much about uh, the fact that most of us put a poster of Farrah Fawcett on the wall, and our parents were thrilled because they were like, hey, it's a girl, and we really just wanted the hair. If I had those feathered wings, oh, man. I could flick my head around.
0: Throughout all of those years, Tim didn't fully realize he was gay. The world around him wouldn't really allow him to. He told me that he dabbled a little bit with his desires in his teens, but that didn't go well. Over a decade later, he saw a Christian counselor who pronounced him not gay. Months after that, he saw another counselor who told him to just scratch the itch as needed. One of his psychiatrists tried to get him to select a female classmate he might be attracted to. He ended up selecting what he called the PR choice, Vicky, and he went on to fulfill what seemed like his duty. They got married and had beloved children. In his book, Tim described Vicky as sophisticated, put-together, talented and aloof, a princess with a beautiful voice, someone who never left home without full makeup and drove a VW convertible. Tim tried to remain faithful, but he just couldn't be someone he was not. And then, with an experience he calls his favorite story, everything changed.
1: I had remained faithful for about 10 years of my marriage, and then I just had to go see if this was true or not. In the book, I tell this story that I was in a situation in a different town, and this very nice, handsome man invited me over to spend the night. And here I am, 35, almost 35, and I'd never slept with a man, ever. And he held me in his arms, and I woke up in the morning and said to myself, I'm home. This is who I am. And it wasn't the illicit, you know, one-off of anonymous sex or whatever. But all of a sudden, I I knew where I fit. And then that began the, the end of my marriage, et cetera, et cetera. I think... You know, for a lot of people that get to come out earlier, I think that may be that kind of moment when you go, oh, it's not that I like this activity so much, because, yeah, we like that. But you find this place where you go, "That this is where I belong.
0: As I told Tim, I was really struck by the beautiful sense of authenticity he experienced in that moment. And at the same time, That realization marked the beginning of the end of his marriage. That's a lot to carry.
1: If I had known that morning when I woke up, (laughs) what I know now, uh, yeah, I knew it wasn't going to be good. And I knew that in that moment that the unraveling needed to begin. There was, um, oh boy, uh, as I have said, that thin veneer of being in the closet when it burst, it was big and it and pain got every on everybody. And I've had several really significant moments of truth telling when, you know, my lies have just caught up with me. And when I finally came out and it was just horrible and my mom and dad are they're gone, but professional Baptists and of course they ask the proverbial question of like, what did we do to make you gay? And I'm like, Yeah, you didn't make me gay. One of my favorite t shirts is My mother made me gay. If you give her some material, she'll make you one too. I said, you didn't make me gay. You made me a man of truth and integrity so that at one point I lost everything but told the truth. And I'm not sure they were happy. Maybe they would have preferred making me gay. That morning when I woke up and knew that that was where I would belong the rest of my life, I had no way to count the cost ahead. Over those couple of years, many times I had the thought the world would be better off without me. My children would never have to know I was gay. I wonder how, if I have the courage to kill myself, and if I did, how would I do that? I would never attempted suicide. It never really came close. But I'd actually checked with my insurance provider on the sly about, you know, does it pay benefits if you commit suicide? Looking back, of course, geez, now I have a long road to look back. And it all turned out so magnificently that I'm glad I didn't do that. During this time, after that that one really life-changing experience, I knew I was a fish out of water. In the huge Southern Baptist church I was serving as the Associate Minister of Music, and in the marriage, and I was just... I knew now where my water was, and I was a fish out of it. So I told my wife, find us a Christian counselor, and we'll go. And so we did. After we met together, he said, well, I'd like to meet with you by yourself, Tim. And then Vicki after that the next day. And I went and told him everything. You know, that I had been unfaithful and played around in the last three years of our marriage. And, and he said, well, duh. I mean, I think I walked in and said, you know, I'm gay. And he goes, yeah, I know. So the next day, instead of just telling my wife sort of the overview, like, like we used to say, you know, he's struggling with homosexual tendencies. Rather than that, he told her everything, you know, that I'd been to bookstores and had anonymous sex and the whole thing. So she reacted as any woman would. I don't blame her for this at all. Maybe her first stop on the way home, I questioned, but she went straight to the pastor's office, like from the counselor, told him everything. I mean, my dirty laundry was hanging out all over Houston. I was outed to everyone. There is some good news to that. The whole band-aid ripped off. And I can tell you that from experience now, uh, for 35 years, I've been waving my arms at gay people as a choir director of the gays, I watch these people who rip the bandaid off slowly and tell just their close circle of friends, who we know are gonna tell their close circle of friends, but then you don't know if the family down the road knows, and that fear, that sense of foreboding of, oh my gosh, who knows and who doesn't know, is sometimes debilitating, that living a lie and fear. And so I didn't have that. I just got ripped, the whole thing ripped off.
0: When that Band-Aid came off, Tim was given a choice. He could accept the steps required by the church or resign. Those steps included, quote-unquote, reparative therapy to fix his gayness, sharing the names of any other homosexual people he knew or suspected were gay in the church, standing before the congregation to be accused, and asking for their forgiveness, and ending his friendship with a female accompanist who was said to have aided and abetted him. He described the prospect of ending that friendship as the one he felt most hurt by and the least willing to do. So, he moved out of his home and into a motel, where he had a new sense of peace. In his book, he wrote, The emotional house of cards came tumbling down. I was alone, without resources or the knowledge of how to get any. Adrift. Yet, I had left the pastor's office with a few things he, nor anyone else, could take away. Truth. Ten months after being fully outed, Tim took a job conducting the Turtle Creek Corral, a gay men's chorus in Dallas. The pay wasn't good at all, and he planned to stay for only a year. Instead, he stayed for 20. Tim was loud and proud about his gayness now, and his parents had opinions about this.
1: My mom and dad asked as Southern Baptists, why do you have to keep telling people that you're gay? Why do you have to just tell that? Why can't you just be a choir director of some men's? You'll love this. I say, so mom and dad, what's the most important day in your life? What is the one day that's the most important? And you might think they might say, you know, like, well, when you were born, which of course I would think they would answer but they didn't or the day they married. No, didn't answer that. The most important day in their life was the day that they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because from that day forward, everything is different. I say to my Southern Baptist professional parents, exactly. And you talk about it all the time, don't you? Yes. No, we live it. We don't just talk about it. And I'm like, well, on October 14th, 1986, when I came out, Everything after that day has been different. Everything for me is new. It looks new. It feels new, just like your salvation experience. So my coming out is just like your salvation experience. How do you think that went over?
0: Oh my goodness. (laughs) Probably not the way I'm feeling it, where I'm like, that is a perfect analogy because it is salvation, freedom, salvation.
1: I got reborn on that day and oh, they don't like it. Oh, no, 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 I don't like that, but it's a good one, isn't it?
0: Some of Tim's family did eventually come around. His brother, well, that was another story.
1: My brother, who's a Baptist preacher, was a Baptist preacher, disowned me three times in front of big Baptist churches. It was awesome. Mom and dad had now this uber-gay, and then they had this uber-conservative preacher for kids. He was the problem all through this more than I was, but mom and dad, they said to me and to their friends, if we are going to believe that God is omnipotent, all powerful, he can change Tim. If God wants Tim to be straight, he can do that. So we're going to put our belief in God. How about that for a concept?
0: The silence and ignorance around gay people's existence that was especially prevalent early in Tim's journey extended into health care as well. Early on in the AIDS crisis, many church communities denied the disease's existence in some ways to avoid admitting anyone was gay. Instead, they said young men were dying of natural causes or even cancer instead. Tim told me that he has lived through two pandemics, the AIDS crisis and the ongoing one we're experiencing now with COVID-19. He's also conducted gay choirs during both pandemics. A year before taking that first conducting job, Tim had no idea gay choruses even existed, much less the impact those experiences would turn out to be. At his first rehearsal, he realized something that would help birth his activism.
1: I mean, I had come out of huge Baptist churches and huge choirs of Baptist people. And I laughingly say that on any given Sunday morning, if Wanda Jean's hair wasn't high enough, she just wouldn't come to church. I mean, like, okay, no, nope, it's too humid. I'm not going. And, and here I came to the, my first rehearsal of a gay men's chorus in 1987. And on the front row was a young man covered in sores. And it completely freaked me out. Because I didn't know what it was. I knew no one up to that point who had AIDS. And I was in the Baptist church. I'm sure there were. But again, they had, you know, they died of natural causes. So our break in rehearsal, I went over and asked one of the men that I knew, what is that? And he looked at me like, okay, you are ignorant. That's KS, carposic Sarcoma. And he is covered with sores from AIDS. Freaked out still. I was like, what is he doing at rehearsal? And he looked at me again and said, This is keeping him alive. He is staying alive with the hope that he can come to another rehearsal. It's all he's doing. And it was a huge shift change for me about the importance of music in our lives and the healing power of music that I had not learned in the church. I changed, yeah, I changed that night.
0: The choir had lost 11 people to AIDS when Tim began conducting. When he left, they had lost 175. As of now, that number is 300. The experience led to performances such as When We No Longer Touch and a PBS documentary based on that composition, After Goodbye, an AIDS story, which won an Emmy. Tim went on to accept an opportunity to guest conduct the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. And when he learned they were looking for a new artistic director, he applied because, quote, it was the first chorus on the planet to proudly proclaim sexual orientation in its very name. When the chorus was only four weeks old, activist Harvey Milk was assassinated. The first performance was on the steps of City Hall. During a candlelight vigil, Harvey Milk, whose campaign motto was, Come Out, Come Out, meaning live openly as who you are, became the choir's patron saint. And Tim commissioned the Ontario I Am Harvey Milk. In 2016, after our current president was elected and the chorus's 40th anniversary was coming up, they decided to take a trip to China. No gay choir had ever gone to China. But the trip would have been extremely expensive, and they wouldn't have been able to perform for many people, so they wouldn't have had a whole lot of impact.
1: So our board chair uh, called and said, let's go to the Deep South, where the LGBTQ people are hurting. They have the worst laws on the books. They're discriminated against. The churches treat them terribly. Let's go on tour to the South. And so, so I had to go back to the guys and go, hey, guys, um, we're going to trade Beijing in for Birmingham. How you feel about that? If we can go make a difference in the South for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, let's go. And so they paid their own way, and we went to Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, and South Carolina and did 25 appearances in, in eight days. And we had a documentary crew. And they went up with us and did this whole documentary thing. And they got back and they had 300 hours of tape and they turned it over to an editor in LA. And so then they made this documentary called Gay Chorus Deep South. So they sent it off. I mean, we don't know. What do we know? I know nothing about documentaries except the first one did really well, the second one did really well, but not in this sphere. That was a documentary, and it was PBS. Okay, fine. Now we're out in the world competing. So they sent it up to, us to some festivals, and lo and behold, we had our world premiere at Tribeca and one audience favorite at Tribeca and one audience favorite in 35 more film festivals around the world. And now it's owned by MTV, and they're looking for a slot in November to screen it nationally. And it is awesome. We rented the Brown Chapel AME in Selma, Alabama, where the civil rights movement began. And it only seats 300 people, and we took 300, so no audience. So it was a really intimate time that was filmed. It was unbelievably moving to know that, you know, in that basement, Martin Luther King gathered and built this revolution, birthed it right there. And here we were doing the same thing in our own way, a part of. The fight for our own rights. And we went from there to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and marched and sang Love Can Build a Bridge while walking across Edmund Pettus Bridge. The best scenes of all is we're in the Brown A.M.E. Chapel and had our time of just crying, trying to sing and crying, and then trying to sing, and then we had four speakers at that service, all of whom had been at the 1965 uh, march across. It was wow, yeah, and we walked out and there were three people protesting, and one girl. It's delicious a film crew went over and interviewed her. And she was well. Like, you know what, I think, you know, once I thought I was a lesbian, or I, and I never acted out on it. But I think, you know, I really like girls. But then I married him and pointed to this poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> so she's trying to protest, but she's like, but I no, yeah, no. Okay, maybe.
0: Yeah, on some level, it feels like that's why she was there, right? Like she was, I need someone else to Tell me this for me. Someone else to embrace this.
1: Yeah, her her sign said repent, and it probably meant
2: help.
0: Tim has had some really meaningful sort of full circle experiences in his own life, too. Early in our conversation, I told him that someone coming out to me as gay when I was a kid immediately showed me that there is not a thing wrong with gayness. He had an experience like that, too. At the time, he was told that his Jewish friend Alan would go to hell, something that made little sense to him. Even so, he tried to do his good Christian duty and help him find the Lord and get saved. 25 years later, Tim went to see Alan.
1: We parted at 18 with my You Need to Get Jesus and, um, and asking him, you know, I think you have a Jesus-shaped hole in your heart. And um, he went off to medical school and I went off to be an opera singer. And then I came out and came back to Dallas, Texas where I was conducting the gay men's chorus. And as soon as I got there, I said, I need a doctor. And my friend said, well, my, my doctor's great. His name is Alan Hamill. And I, all the blood rushed out of my face. I actually began to cry because I'm like, you've got to be kidding that I left at 18 and now I'm 36. So 18 years later, I didn't know if he would take me as a patient at all. I wouldn't if I, if I had been him, but I called and made an appointment and I came in and, and, uh, they put me in the waiting room and I was sweating like a whore in church. You know, how will you do that anyway <laughs> in the waiting room? Cause you're like, you not knowing where they're going to prod. Yeah. But- Anyway, I was just sweating, and I heard the rustle on the door of him pulling out the papers, and he walked in, and I hadn't seen him in eighteen years, and he put the chart down and opened his arms. Yeah, I get chill bumps today, um because you know here was this beautiful Jewish man doing what Christians are supposed to do. Hello. <laughs>
0: Right. Yes. Opening our arms and being loving and accepting. And it's interesting that these tenets of love your neighbor, tell the truth, kind of take lower rank than this other idea of having to look and behave a certain way sexually.
1: Yeah. And make them be what you want them to be when that's just stupid.
0: Increasingly over the years, Tim's parents embraced not only his gayness and his pride about his identity, but his work and advocacy.
1: All of this has been music and mission, or activism has been a huge part of my whole life. And toward the end of their lives, they absolutely said, with no question, you're a minister. Your ministry, and my mom said, your ministry now is greater than it could have ever been in the church. Yeah, right up to dad's passing, he caught on the activist just a little bit and found a, a way to do that. I, I'm so grateful for that, for that journey.
0: If you haven't been able to live fully or openly as who you are, whether that's gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, or anything else, maybe it's not safe to do so where you live or you haven't found the support system you need just yet. Tim had this to say
1: in that setting, because I was there, oh boy was I there, when you think you're the only one. You're sitting there listening to this podcast or you're on YouTube and you're yearning to be a part of something like that. This was part of the discussion through the South of, yeah, we'd look over at San Francisco and think, oh my gosh, I wish I could be there. But there are a lot of circumstances that don't allow for that. And I think if I were to say anything to people in that that situation who are isolated and in small places and have this fear of what might happen if they came out, sit in your room, talk to yourself, look at yourself in the mirror, tell yourself, Number one, this is my life mission, is to make sure that everyone looking in that mirror knows that they are whole and fully formed by their creator, whoever that is. You don't have to change. This is who I am. It was how I was born. The lies and the faking things like sex that we do to fit in are all just this veneer. I will tell folks this that are in that situation and sitting at home for the last 35 years, I have conducted and counseled hundreds of LGBTQ people. I've never had one that said, I wish I had waited longer to come out. Not one. Every single one of them says, I don't know why I just didn't do that. Because the pain's not going to get easier. Trust me. The longer you live that lie, the harder it's going to be. And, you know, some of it never borrow trouble from the future. So (laughs) so when you imagine, oh, my gosh, I love to say, you know, well, you know, if I came out, Grandpa might just die. I like to say that, you know, there's never been a reported death from a family member coming out. No one's actually died from that. So take Grandpa off of that. Grandpa is probably going to go, yeah, I love that all the fears that we build up. I mean, mine all came true. I lost everything, but then I regained it. And the regaining was so beautiful and delicious, much of which I've described about my parents, when we all tell the truth and we're all authentic. And I will say that because you are made the way you are by your creator, people that can't accept that are now defying your creator, they're not just defying you. They're saying your God that you've chosen is no good and wrong and made a mistake and you're not a mistake. So whatever courage you can come up with inside yourself. And then I would say, of course, come out to somebody. Just come out to somebody. And once you do that, you pretty much want to tell another person.
0: In the introduction of his book, Tim shared that the decision to write his life story began as an exercise to make sense of his many ups and downs. And then it quickly turned into a lot more. By sharing my roller coaster journey, he wrote, perhaps others' twists and turns, ups and downs, may seem a little tamer, or at least conquerable.
1: The coming out was just one of my ups and downs I'm HIV positive And that was really hard. I'd already come out. And then I had to do that again with all my family and tell them that. And I've, I had lots of ups and downs in my career as an opera singer and some huge successes, but it was all up and down. And then uh, two years ago, my daughter died suddenly and, um, who lived here, not with me, but here 10 minutes away from me. And, rocked my world. And so I took some time away and thought I'm going to write. I'll just write just a journal. And it turned into a book. And um, because I spent 35 years as a Southern Baptist music minister and almost 35 now, as I say, waving my arms at the gaze, it's two lives. It's two completely different lives. Oh boy. And so I called my book, Tale of Two Tims, Big old Baptist, big old gay. And it's just a it's just a chronicle of my experiences and what I've learned. And it's on the Amazon. And I actually read the audiobook myself, and it's available on Amazon, Audible, iTunes. Or you can find it at my website, which is timselig.com. And uh, you can find all that at my website at timseelig.com. And it's been so fun. I don't um, I don't really hawk, I'm not a bookseller. I, you know, it's not that Oh, my book. Oh, my book. Oh, my book. Um, But people have enjoyed it. I'll just say that.
0: Find direct links to Tim Selig's books down in the show notes. I cannot wait to see his latest documentary. This week's listener question involves a coming out experience, too. It came from Dakota, who wrote this. My friend recently told her parents she's gay and they are not being cool about it. She came out because she fell in love and I'm so happy for her. I also want to be supportive and cheer her up. She and I were talking and she seems to have a lot of sex questions. One that came up is how to use couples toys during sex in an only vaginas situation. If you can provide tips and maybe suggest a toy that I could put in a care package for her, that would be amazing. Dakota, you are so awesome and I'm so happy that your friend has you and a newfound love in her life. It is so common to have questions about sex, especially if you are in the LGBTQIA community and have had even less access to comprehensive sex ed for anybody who is not in that community. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com had to say.
2: Dakota, shout out to you for being an amazing friend and being there for your friend. Coming out to parents and loved ones is never easy. In fact, a recent study showed almost a third of LGBTQ youth say that telling people that they love and concern that they won't accept them when they come out is one of their biggest concerns. And so, all I can say is that although it's very unfortunate and sad her, your friend's parents right now aren't cool about her being gay, it's a journey and a process that takes time and a series of conversations, including education that sexual orientation is so much more than about sex. And I have seen countless times how, even when initially a conversation or even the first few passes doesn't go well with parents, over time, really making room for both people's sides, sort of perspectives in time, can lead to a real shift and change in feelings about acceptance and ability to embrace, um, something that's really often so unfamiliar. So that being said, I wanna get back to your initial point, which is how do you cheer up your friends? All I can say is there's some really great sex toys out there, and although they often can be used for any sexual orientation, some women absolutely prefer those that are sort of less phallic in nature. And there's a company in particular I love Called Wet for Her, which is a company designed by lesbians for lesbians. And so, one thing that's kind of hot right now is the strapless strap-on dildo because it can be used either way. So, if your or your friends or her partners' PC muscles aren't giving them the control they desire, they can wear their favorite dildo with a harness. And so, two models I recommend. One is called the Double Dildo Four, and it has the longer shaft and kind of boasts the Wet for Her signature double-digit fingers. It also includes a five speed USB rechargeable bullet vibe so all parties can enjoy the vibrations. And the small bulb end provides a snug fit to the wearer who can activate their own PC muscles grips to keep it in action. And as I said, if the muscles aren't there, you always got the strap on. The second model I recommend is called the Double Dildo Union, and it has even greater versatility than its predecessor, the Four that I just mentioned. The smooth silicon covers a flexible copper wire that allows the shaft to be bent into almost any shape. How hot is that? And this opens the door to new positions and a deeper range of pleasure for both solo and couple play. The Union comes with a 5-speed USB rechargeable bullet vibrator for more stimulating, vibing action. I also recommend the Dame Finn. This is a small finger vibe, so your friend can give or receive extra clitoral stimulation with one hand while using the other hand. The other hand is free for all different kinds of stimulation. So everything from G-spot to nipple play to use your imagination. What I love about the Fin is it has dual sensations and an optional tether, which means it can help steady the toy and it can also be easily removed. An extra bonus, it's waterproof. So the one side is kind of flat and squishy, offering a softer touch, while the other is more firm for direct clitoral stimulation. And this option really allows you to be creative with your routine and play. And so you can wear it on your finger for direct clitoral stimulation, or you can flip it to the back of your hand to allow vibration sort of to travel through all your fingers. Those are sort of my top recommendations. But considering this is a care package, I also want you to think about nipple clamps, lube, and sexy lingerie. I only wish that I could be there to see your friend's face enjoy when she opens it.
0: I love those suggestions. Thank you, Dr. Megan. All of those toys sound super fun. Another thing to keep in mind is that all sex toys can become couple sex toys. Dakota, you and your friend are so right that Most toys labeled couples' toys are designed for a penis and clitoris combo, but you can have fun playing with toys for one person together, or two toys, or one for each of a pair, which I highly recommend. If you have a question for me or Dr. Megan, please feel free to reach out. For monthly extras from me by email, sign up at girlboner.org or at the link in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, I would so appreciate a rating or review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. I know a bit about the ideology in Baptist churches. I grew up half of my childhood was in the Baptist church. My grandfather was a Baptist pastor. Oh, where was that? In Minnesota.
1: But that's northern. That's like, you know, one is it called one meal or jello cake. I can't I remember. Mean, you have, well, you have different food.
0: Oh oh, you're literally asking about the food. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, food was big, but very Swedish.
1: The casseroles up where you are, not the same.
0: We have hot dish.
1: Hot dish, not one dish. Hot, hot dish. dish. Yeah. yeah. And my first time to ever taste um jello cake was in also in the north.
0: Jello cake. I had jello salad.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a oh.
0: It had Snickers in it and apples and jello.
1: The jello salad is uh cake is precious. You make a white tea cake and then you pour hot jello all over it and it seeps down and you get to have red or blue and it's terrible. <laughs> but then I'm sure they think some of my southern food is terrible too, so